Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we strive to learn God's Word and apply it to our lives, our congregation, and our world. Today's lesson, presented to the Franklin Church on August 31, 2008, examines the restored Jews following the Babylonian captivities. When they returned home, they started to build the temple like gangbusters, accomplishing great things in a short amount of time. However, they then allowed the altar and temple foundation to lie untouched for more than a decade. What happened? And how do they get back on task? Today, we are also building God's temple. Therefore, we want to learn what happened to them so we can avoid it. We also want to learn what got them back in the game so we can get back on top if we slip. So, open your Bible and get ready to learn about finishing the temple. Have you ever gotten a project started with great enthusiasm? You got a lot done on it right away. And then, after a couple of days, you decided to take a break. You got distracted with something, and then you got distracted with something else, and then distracted with something else, and then distracted with something else. And now, a year's gone by, and you haven't done anything else on it. I don't know how many times I've started to clean out the garage. All kinds of projects like that. Well, that's exactly the scenario that the Israelites found themselves in after they were released from their Babylonian captivity and they came back to the Holy Land, to God's promised land. They got there and they, they immediately jumped on building the temple. But then it kind of fell to the wayside. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build, rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. That the word of the Lord might be fulfilled. Cyrus came up as God had prophesied and said that they could go on back to the land of Israel and there they could build that temple and they could finish it. Because Jehovah God, is God. But not just everybody left. There in Ezra chapter 1 and verse 5 it says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, every one whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred up. They're the ones that left. These were, these were people whose spirits were stirred within them that they didn't just want to get home. They wanted to get home and they wanted to rebuild the temple. They wanted to get the house of Lord, the Lord back in its place so that they could worship God as God had said. That's what they were wanting to do. And they got back and they did pretty well. In fact, according to chapter 2 and verse 64, 42,360 of them left and went back through the 800-mile journey through the Fertile Crescent, back to Jerusalem. And they started to work. Chapter 3 begins in verse 1. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, 
the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings, morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule as each day required. And then again in verse 8, he goes on, In the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. We find that within a year, they had rebuilt the altar. They had reestablished the feasts. They had set the priests in place, and they had laid the foundation of the temple. They were working hard. But then it kind of all fell apart. It's important for us to recognize this story because this story is not just their story. This story is our story, in a sense. Because they're not the only ones that are trying to build a temple. Look in Ephesians. In Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Paul says this to us, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22 goes on, In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are also building a temple. In fact, we are the temple being built together. And so there's so much that we can learn here in the book of Ezra as they wanted to build a temple and as they were distracted from building it. And how easy that is for us today. How easy it is. And, and if you're like me, there are times when you're just going like gangbusters and things are great and you're building the temple and then there's times when you get distracted. And there's times that you gotta come back and then there's times that you get distracted. This is, a, this is a cycle for us. What I want us to notice as we take a look in the book of Ezra and the surrounding passage and the passages that, that uh, parallel with that is what caused them to stop building and what got them back. What caused them to stop and what brought them back. Because that's going to be a cycle that we go through and we need to be aware of it and pay attention to it so that we can stop the things that turn us away and focus on the things that bring us to build the temple. Before we get into that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Our Almighty God, we love you and we thank you for letting us be a part of your temple. We're thankful that you have brought us into your family and that you allow us to be your dwelling place. We're thankful that you've allowed us to come here together with one another so that we can worship and praise you as a congregation, so that we can edify one another, so that we can remember your son and the death that he died for us. Father, we're thankful for the opportunities that we have as your people to 
honor you and serve you. And we pray that you would help us to build your temple today. Help us to draw others in so that we can lay brick by brick this temple that you are constructing as a dwelling place for you. Help us as individuals to be that dwelling place as well. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to to turn away from those things that would distract us and cause us to quit and to focus on the things that will help us to stick with it and to work every day in your temple and your kingdom. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, so we ask the question, why did they stop? I think it's important for us to notice, first of all, something that didn't cause them to stop, but threatens us. The very first thing is we need to notice that they did not stop because of the the, the unity with mixed religion. In Ezra chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Ezra chapter 4 and verse 1, the children of Israel had come back to Jerusalem, and now there's people in the land all around them, and they come up to them in Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asherhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. You'll remember from our sermon last week, as we took took a look at the mixed religion, in 2 Kings chapter 17, when Assyria conquered Israel, it removed the majority of the Israelites off the foreign land and brought others into the land. And then God sent lions to them because they weren't worshiping God at all. And so they brought a priest in and he taught them how to fear the Lord. But they didn't fear him enough to follow only him. Rather, they mixed in their own idolatry along with that. And these are the descendants of those very people. These are the very ones who had had feared the Lord, but not enough to fear only him. And they had their mixed religion. And so now that the Israelites have come to worship the true and living God and to only worship him and to rebuild the house that he has there, the place for his name to rest, where true worship can take place for him. These false worshipers, these who have mixed religion, are coming along and saying, hey, we worship your God. Let's be united and build this temple together. But I want you to notice what Zerubbabel's response was. In verse 3, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. They recognized that there was no unity among those who would mix man's religion in with God's religion. They couldn't have that kind of unity and work together on building the temple. We need to take care today not to be distracted from building the true temple of God by the mixed religion that's around us that, that would try to say, hey, we can be united with you. We all worship the same God. We're all going to the same place. We're just taking different ways to get there. We have folks in these religions that are trying to say that somehow we can be united and yet not be united around the world. We can just just proclaim unity and act like we're building the temple together. If we do that, we're not building the temple of God at all. We're building something else. We need to remember what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. 
Then I will welcome you, and I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. I recognize that Paul here was talking about the the connection of Christianity with idolatry, but we need to recognize we cannot be in unity religiously or spiritually with those who declare that you don't even have to be baptized for the remission of their sins. They may believe in our God, they may believe in Jesus, but if they're not going to teach the gospel that Jesus has given, we can't be united with that. That's not Christianity, that's something else. And we've got to remember that. We have to make a stand on the truth that God has given in His gospel. We need to be like our ancient counterparts. And we must not be overcome by those who are involved in mixing man's religion with God's. Things would have been good if it had stopped here. But those opponents who had come in, and and who knew exactly what their motivation was when, when they came to say they wanted to build the temple together? But we certainly know that when they were rebuffed here, now they became true and complete opponents. And we recognize that they hired counsel against them. And the Israelites were discouraged by those who were involved in mixed religion. If we go back to Ezra chapter 4 and verse 4, the text continues to say, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We know that for 16 years, these opponents discouraged the children of Israel from building that temple. There the foundation lay, but nothing was being built upon it. The altar stood there, but nothing was being done. They were discouraged because the folks in mixed religion, when they couldn't be involved, when they couldn't be united, when they wouldn't say, oh yes, we're all united, we're all worshiping the same God, we're all going to the same place, just taking different ways. When the Israelites made that stand, wouldn't, when they wouldn't go along with that, then the enemy started discouraging them. Hiring counselors, lawyers, bribes. I don't know exactly what they said. But knowing what some folks in mixed religion today say, I I can guess. Oh, you guys think you're the only ones that serve God. Y'all think you're the only ones that are going to heaven. Y'all are a bunch of Pharisees. Y'all are a bunch of legalists. It's not about the law that you're serving. It's just if you're sincere in serving God. Don't we hear those kind of things to discourage? And how many have hired counselors to teach against the will of God? I think about the counselors that I've heard as they start to pick apart very clear things. Just one example, that of, that of baptism and what the Scripture says about it. I mean, you, just, you just can't get much more clear than he that believes is baptized shall be saved. You just can't get much more clear than repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. You just can't get much more clear than you have to be born again of water and spirit if you want to enter the kingdom. You just can't get much more clear than baptism now saves us. You, you just can't get much more clear than that. And yet the counselors today, as they, as they fuss and feud and fight and argue and pick against all of those things. And what amazes me is as we hear these counselors, they're not trying to clarify the Word of God. Watch and listen as they argue against these verses. And instead of trying to make them more clear, they try to muddy the waters and act like, well, you just can't be dogmatic because you just can't really know what these verses say. For instance, in John chapter 3 and verse 5, where Jesus said we have to be born again of water and the Spirit. You remember what it said? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Well, no, we don't know what that water is. You know, sometimes water in the Bible means the Word of God. And sometimes it means oh, a water. And sometimes it could mean the amniotic fluid. We just don't know what that verse means. You see, they're not trying to clarify the meaning. They're not trying to understand. They're trying to muddy the meaning so that they can say, well, you just, just don't have to follow that verse. Or Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, where Jesus just very clearly says that we should go into the world and proclaim the gospel, and he that believes and is baptized will be saved. The last half says, he that believes not, or he who doesn't believe, shall be condemned. And folks, take a look at the last half of that verse and try to use it to deny the first half. I'll just share with you my opinion on that is the second half tells us how to be lost. The first half tells us how to be saved. If you want to be lost, focus on the last half. If you want to be saved, focus on the first half. But how many folks today take a look at that second half and deny the first half of it? Not trying to clarify the meaning, just trying to say, oh, well, we just don't even know if we can follow it. And then, of course, we hear, well, we're not even sure if those verses are supposed to be there. That's Billy Graham's answer to this text. We're just not even sure if it's supposed to be there, so we can't make a dogmatic claim from this verse. Or Acts 2.38. I'm just not sure how you could be much more clear than Acts 2.38 where Peter said, let each of you repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And they'll say, well, you know that word for. That's such an interesting word. You know, I saw that on a poster in the post office the other day where it said wanted for murder. When I, was that wanted be, be in order to commit murder or because they committed murder? Well, you see, this for here, could he's baptized because you've been forgiven. Well, I'll point out to you that it's not just baptized for, but repent and be baptized for. So, did I repent because I was already forgiven? You see, again, it's not let's clarify, it's let's muddy it up, let's make it darker, let's make it unclear, so that we can just say you just can't take a position on this one. Or we take a look. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Not as a removal of the dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here, baptism is connected to the waters of the flood, which separated Noah from the perverse generation and saved him from that perverse generation. But we're told that baptism, which is a like figure unto the water of the flood, well, that's not water baptism. That's spiritual baptism. Or I've been told by somebody, yes, it does save us, but it doesn't save us from our sins. Again, counselors are hired to muddy up the waters, to discourage us, and try to get us to believe that, well, okay, look, if you're going to be separate, that's okay. You just can't really make this dogmatic stand because we just can't know what the Bible really says about that. And how many of us have become discouraged by this kind of counsel and this kind of work? And we just kind of back off. And instead of building the temple and getting that gospel out there so that other bricks can be laid in the temple, we just kind of back off. We need to remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. We're going to have opponents. They're going to counsel against us. And there's no need for us to run and hide every time they say something mean about us. 
We just need to recognize that's what's going to happen. It's been happening since the days of Zerubbabel and Joshua. It's going to happen today. The Israelites allowed it to turn them away from building the temple. We need to overcome. But there wasn't just opponents on the outside. We recognize that they also had internal struggles. You see, they were distracted by their personal pursuits. And we need to turn out of the book of Ezra in order to recognize this, but we get over to the book of Haggai, one of the prophets that God sent to the children of Israel to try to get them to come back and rebuild the temple. And in Haggai chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? What had happened? They had built their own houses, but they hadn't built the house of God. The point here is they had become distracted by their personal pursuits. They had their own houses to build. They had mouths to feed. They had parents to care for. They had wives to, to protect and take care of, children to raise up, retirement to plan for. They got distracted by their own pursuits. Not that those pursuits were bad, but when they distract us from taking care of God's things, that's the problem. Reminds me of when I worked with Mason Harris back almost 15 years ago when I lived in Dyersburg, Tennessee. Mason, he and I were talking one time, and and a lot older than I am, a lot more experienced, and he just talked about how it, he'd seen two scenarios. One regarding contribution, the finances, of taking care of the Lord's work, and he said it just it just frustrated him how many times he talked to people, and he saw young people, and well, they couldn't contribute much because well, we're going to college, and we're having to pay for college, and we've got to get ready for that. And, and, but then by, when we're done with college, we'll give more. But then when they got done with college, they were getting married, and they were having to figure out how to, to, to do this married thing and buy a house and, and buy cars. And when we get all that in, in, in line, then we'll give more. But, but then they had kids. and Guys, kids cost money. Trust me. I know wherever I speak. It's diapers and formula. It's just amazing. And so well, when we're done with that, then we'll take care of it. But then the kids, we've got to put them in scouts and, and, and sports. And we've got to make sure they go to a good school. We've got to get them a good computer. We've got to make sure they have a car when they turn 16. And then we've got to pay for college. So once we get all that done, then, then we'll be able to contribute more. But then by the time they got that done, now we're on a fixed income. And so we just can't give much. But, hey, we put a clause in our insurance that when we die, the money will be there. So basically what that means is, is at the point that I no longer need my money, I've got some to give to the Lord. Or what about time? It's the same thing he pointed out that he saw with time. And so many of the young people, well, you know, I've got high school and I've got sports and I've got to get a job and, and now I've got college. But once that's done and I've set and I've got my career path on the way, then I'll take time to teach Bible classes and to study with people and to visit the sick and, and to call on folks and to help others and to serve them. Well, but the problem is once college is done, now I'm married. I've got to figure out how to take care of my wife or take care of my husband. Once we get that in line, well, then I have kids. And kids are busy. Got to get them to baseball. Got to get them to soccer. And once we get all that in line, then I'll take some time and I'll be able to teach class and I'll go study with people and I'll go visit the sick and I'll make sure to pray for people. But then when that's done, now, well, now I'm retired. I got to do my traveling. 
And so I'm going to travel, and I'm going to get all that out of the way. And then when that's done, they go to the preacher and say, hey, I've spent my time in the trenches. Now it's time for the young people to start doing something. How easy it is to get distracted from building the temple of the Lord by our personal pursuits. And not a single one of those things in that list are bad things. How easy it is to get distracted from the best things by those things that are only good. We need to remember what it says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. We need to keep our mind on heavenly things or we'll get distracted from building the temple. Well, what happened? What brought them around? What got them started again? In the book of Ezra, chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And they prophesied and brought them back to teach the Word. Now, what's really interesting here is that the, ch- the children of Israel did not treat them as they had treated earlier prophets. In Ezekiel chapter 33, notice how the children of Israel treated Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 30, God said, Ezekiel, I'm going to send you to the people. Here's what's going to happen. Ezekiel 33 and 30. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say. But they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. The children of Israel had heard prophets speak before, and they came to him, and they came as God's people and said, Let us hear the word of the Lord. And it was entertaining. It was beautiful. The man was eloquent, and they loved it, and they talked about what a great speaker he was. They just didn't do what he said. But that's not what happened with Haggai and with Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah came among the people, and the people listened. The people did what was said. Well, what was the message that came from Haggai and Zechariah? The first thing that they were reminded was that those who don't serve the Lord will be judged. Haggai in Haggai chapter 1 beginning at verse 11, demonstrates this judgment. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain and the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. God said, I've been judging you because of this. I've been judging you and I've been taking away your produce. The reason why your grain hasn't been doing so well is because I've been judging you because you're not serving me. Zechariah talks about judgment in multiple places. In Zechariah, He demonstrates this judgment upon the nations who went against Israel in chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, what are these coming to do? 
And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations, who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter. He says, judgment's going to come upon the people who have been going against God's people, those who haven't been serving. Chapter 7 is a chapter of judgment. As God says that judgment will come upon these people who have come back to the land just as much as it came on the people who left the land if they don't follow God's will. In fact, look in verse 8 of Zechariah 7. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. And as I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a the whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. He says, if you guys don't serve me any more than your fathers did, I'll judge you just like I did your fathers. That's the point. Chapter 14 and verse 2, another example. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out to exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the holy city. I believe here he's talking about the judgment that came in A.D. 70 on Jerusalem. But God pointed out judgment will come on those who don't obey. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Judgment comes on those who don't serve the Lord. But the second thing that the prophets told them is, listen, if you obey God, God is with you. In Haggai chapter 1 and verse 13, this was the message. Haggai 1.13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. We've got all these opponents against us, but God is with us. We can win because God is with us. Zechariah chapter 4 has some very apocalyptic sounding prophecy, and it becomes a little bit confusing as we read it, but he explains to us in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6 what it means. Excuse me, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God's point was, it's not going to be because you're strong, Zerubbabel, it's going to be because I am with you, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And he goes on, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amidst the shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. God is with them. He said, God is with you. If you just do what he says, don't worry about the counsel of the opponents. God is with you. Just do what he says. That's the same thing that we need to remember in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. In Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 5. The Hebrew writer says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. God is with us if we'll simply do what he says and obey him. And the third thing that the prophet said was, God has plans for you. 
Not only am I with you, God says, but I have plans for you. If we look in Zechariah, we hear about some of the plans that God had for His people. Look in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? He was talking about his plan for Jesus to come to the Israelites. But he had plans for them. They could win. They could overcome if they would just do what he says. He had plans for them. Verse 13, I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. This talks about when Greece comes in and they take over, and Antiochus Epiphanes causes all the problems, the Maccabean revolt. God is talking about his plan for that right then. The Israelites are going to come up and conquer Greece and kick them out of the promised land. His plans for them right there. In chapter 13, chapter 13 and verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I'll turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I'll put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They'll call upon my name, and I'll answer them, and I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. Again, God talking about His plans to bring in the Messiah and to bring out the remnant that would be saved back in Haggai. Haggai talked about the plans of the Lord. Haggai, chapter 2, 21 through 23. Speak to Zerubbabel. This is Haggai 2, verse 21. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And here we see the prophecy that the Hebrew writer talks about in chapter 12. We're not going to read that for sake of time, but that prophecy that's coming, and it's talking about the church that's going to come out of the Judaism and out of Jerusalem and then spread throughout the world, shake the kingdoms and leave behind what can be, what cannot be shaken, the plan. God has plans for us. God has plans for us that He reveals in His Word. In Romans chapter 8, he talks about his plans for us as individual Christians. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's got plans for us to be conformed to the image of His Son. In Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, he talks about the plan that he has for his church. In Ephesians 3 verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's got plans for his church to bring about this wisdom and to show it to the world. We'll jump to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The plans that God has for us in eternity. 
First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58, talk about the resurrection that we'll have and the eternity that we'll have in the kingdom of God forever. He has plans for us. And finally, First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 talks about the inheritance that we have that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God has plans for us. We can just do what He says, and we'll win, we'll overcome. If we don't serve Him, we'll be judged. But if we serve Him, He's with us and He has plans for us. This caused the Israelites to come back and build the temple. And they were successful. It took them four more years. Overall, it took them 20. They could have had it done in 25% of that time if they hadn't allowed the people to distract them. How much work could we get done in Christ's kingdom and building Christ's temple if we just don't let the enemies and our own personal pursuits distract us? I think Haggai chapter 1 and verse 14 demonstrates to us the great success they had and why. Haggai chapter 1 and verse 14, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month and the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. I want you to notice three things just very quickly about this. They all came. They worked. They all came and worked. It wasn't just a few. This entire remnant that came back, it says they all came and worked. And because of that, they finished the temple. And that's what we need. You know, there's this thing out in the business world called the Pareto Principle. 80-20 rule. 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people. Any of you heard that? It's not the way it works here in Ezra and Haggai. It shouldn't work that way for us. 100% of the people do 100% of the work. They came, they worked, they all came and worked. I hope this lesson edified you and glorified God. Let's remember what we learned. The people did not stop because of unity with mixed religion. We mustn't let that stop us either. They did, however, get discouraged by the attacks of those in mixed religion and they did get distracted by their own personal pursuits. We must avoid this. They got back in the game when God's prophets reminded them that those who don't serve the Lord will be judged. However, God was with them if they would obey, and God had plans for them. The people responded when they came and when they worked. But perhaps the greatest point was that they all came and worked. If you have any questions about this lesson, or if you have any spiritual needs or prayer requests, feel free to call us at 615-794-2359, or you may contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. Also, if you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we would love to meet you. Feel free to attend one of our classes or assemblies. You may get a schedule or directions to our building at our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.